A Tryst with Death by Edgar White. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Dale Grothman. A Tryst with Death by Edgar White. I do not know. But somehow I feel if you would venture there some time after the turn of the night, I would know that you were there, and that good would come of it. If there is any way to make my presence known to you, I will do it. We may be quite near, you and I, to the great revelation. Who knows? The man who penned these lines stood closer to the great revelation than he perhaps suspected. A few days later, Dr. Robert St. Clair contracted a malady from one of his patients, and his death swiftly followed, as his constitution had been weakened from overwork. His remains now rested in Oakland Cemetery, overlooking the Mississippi. By his request, they were brought to the old hometown for internment. He wanted to hear the ripple of the great river that had been the playground of our youth. The quote was from the last letter he had written me. In some respects, Dr. St. Clair was odd. He had never become a convert to spirit communication, but he sought the answer to the riddle as diligently as some men seek gold in the mountains. He wanted to know. From the coal miners he had learned that there was a sort of inner movement of the earth along about midnight at that hour rock would fall in the pit and the cross timbers would groan under their weight it was a period when all the hidden forces of nature were in action the doctor held the theory that if those on the further shore could deliver a message or make their presence known here it would be along about that period in his letter he spoke rather wistfully of wishing I would try the experiment with him in case he was called first, and I conjectured that when he learned his malady would end in his death, he stipulated that his remains be brought to our cemetery, where the matter would be convenient, if any place could be convenient for a man to go out into a graveyard after midnight, and there await the appearance of a shadowy form from the other side. By nature, I'm intensely practical. Being a newspaper man, I'm rather cynical about ghosts, spirit communications, Ouija boards, and fortune-tellers. But I recalled with a rather queer sensation that the day before I received the telegram announcing the doctor's death, I labored under a queer fit of depression. It seemed as if something was going to happen. The doctor had spoken of these things, and cited several startling instances. I didn't relish that experiment in the graveyard. Not that I had expected to see or hear anything, but I had the apprehension that one often feels, no matter how case-hardened, that something unusual might happen. The doctor and I had been very close friends until he left to go to the city, since which time we had corresponded occasionally. He never married. Too busy, I suppose. Of course, I had to go out there and see the fool business through. 
I loaded up with cigars and matches and carried a heavy walking stick. The stick was for dogs and tramps. It would be useless against the sort of people I might be going to meet, I knew. Oakland is a lovely cemetery. It is on a rolling bluegrass hill running right up to the bluffs of the great river. There are many beautiful trees. I've known of men who died thousands of miles away and asked that they be buried at our cemetery because of its singular picturesqueness and solemnity. It was a pretty moonlit night, and I chose to walk rather than hire a car. I knew all about the place in daytime. You rarely see people who have business in a graveyard at night. The trees were grotesquely large, and the thick foliage shut out the rays of the moon. It was an intense dark, and I had a flashlight and could follow the driveway. At times there would be queer rustlings among the grass and leaves. Occasionally there was a strange cry of a night bird and the distant bay of a hound. Sacred to the memory of. I knew how all these headstones read, terminal marks of life's journey. On the very old ones were indexes pointing upward, always upward. God grant they traveled that way. If there is a way. I shuddered. In a moment I would know. The vault was on a sort of cleared space, not far from the edge of the tall bluff the foot of which was lashed by the tide. Hello, I cried. A woman was standing at the front of the vault, moving her arms dramatically. She wheeled on me, and I was startled by the unearthly beauty of her pallid face. Cold shivers ran down my spine. I might as well set it down right here that I believed I had met a being from another world. The time, the place, the dark dress with the hood thrown back, revealing a face of rare loveliness, but pale as death. What could it mean? But she broke the spell. Who are you? Her voice quavered with emotion. She had been weeping. A good friend of Dr. St. Clair's, I replied, and my voice showed the agitation I felt. Did you know him? It was evident my presence had not scared her, and that was why I still regarded her with doubt. Yes, he saved me from hunger, then killed my soul. I cannot convey the intensity of the words. As she stood there, her hands clenched with deep furrows in her forehead. I wondered whether she was human or something sent up by the fiend to curse the dead. Certainly none with a right heart could feel bitter toward a man like Dr. St. Clair. You are a friend of his? Then listen, she went on passionately. He never wronged me in the usual way, not that, but he was always kind and gentle and good whenever he came about me. He would lay his hands on my shoulder and call me his good little girl. I was a nurse, and he let me love him, love why i would have died for him and he knew it he knew it as well as if i'd told him but i was no more to him than the boards he walked on go on 
I said, sitting down on the bench near the vault. He died suddenly, and I never got to tell him, she said. But I know he had an odd fancy that the dead might come back over their graves and communicate with the living. His idea was they awakened after midnight. And I came all the way to tell him what I thought of him. I, I, I love him so. She stamped her feet. Then she broke down crying and flung herself on the bench beside me. She looked intensely young and childish. It was hard to keep away from the idea that she wasn't a woodland fairy, crushed and bruised, out there in the moonlight. Listen, little friend, I said. I have known the man you speak of much longer than you have. You have simply mistaken him. I'd stake my life on his honor toward women. If he let you love him, he loved you. You can set that down. She stopped crying and straightened up, moving a little closer toward me. I am here tonight at his request, as conveyed in the last letter he wrote me, I went on. I have that letter with me. What is your name? I asked abruptly. Agnes Lindell, she whispered. That's the name. I told her, and you can see it in a few moments yourself. Now listen here, and I held the flashlight to the paper. In our hospital is a young lady named Agnes Lindell, one of the sweetest and most faithful girls I have ever seen. I can imagine your ironic smile at this, coming from a hard-boiled woman-hater like myself. To no other person would I make the statement and you know me too well to attribute it to boastfulness. But this dear little girl is so grateful to me for fancied service that she thinks I'm the greatest fellow in the world. If I wasn't sure her feeling was founded altogether on gratitude, I'd ask her to marry me, despite me being many years older. But I can't get away from the conviction that it would be wrong to take advantage of my influence over her. I love her too much for that. God knows, I want to do what's right, and should anything ever happen to me, Jim, and you could find her, I wish you'd tell her that with my last breath my thoughts were of her." The girl reached gently over and took the letter from my hand. "'It's mine by rights,' she murmured. I nodded. "'It's yours.' She fixed it to her bosom some way taking extraordinary pains, it seemed to me, to secure it with pins. Then she smiled, and impulsively held out her hand. "'I'm so glad I met you,' she said in a deep, melodious voice that seemed to be hers by birthright. Her face was serene and happy. "'It was rather lucky,' I remarked. "'But it's getting chilly out here. Hadn't we better be going back?' We were standing close together, she hanging to my arm as we strolled slowly along. Do you believe the people up there understand the truth of all of these things that worry us so down here? She asked, looking eagerly into my eyes. Most assuredly, I replied. There is no doubting up there, no grief, no sorrow at separation. We were following the path close to the edge of the bluff. An icy chill 
like the breath of death, came up from the deep water below. Suddenly, to the northeast, a long, slender, pink streak of light appeared over the trees on the far side of the river. Look, she cried, letting go of my arm. The dawn is breaking. It's all light over there. He's calling, calling to me. I see him. Doctor, Robert, I'm coming. And before I could reach her, she ran to the edge of the high bluff and leapt off like a bird. The End of A Tryst with Death by Edgar White